I'm Pastor Mike Winger, and this is Bible Thinker, the program dedicated to thinking biblically about everything. Okay, all right, so we're going to do something very special tonight. Um, You guys know Hebrews 11 as the Hall of Faith, right, where it discusses all these Old Testament figures and how they had these great lives of faith, or at least great moments of faith, trusting in God. But I think that it is also a Hall of Types or typology, or foreshadowing Jesus. We already have established this. Typology is a very biblical thing, and according to Jesus, typology is going to be throughout the entire Bible. Numerous passages and a bunch of different examples we've already given throughout this this series. Um, And we've dealt with things like um, the bronze serpent, how the bronze serpent represented Jesus. We've dealt with Moses, how Moses represented Christ in so many ways, and even themes throughout the Old Testament, like out of Egypt. How people keep coming out of Egypt, into Egypt, out of Egypt, and this ends up being something Jesus does. And even a theme like that represents Jesus. So let me tell you um, what what made me first think of Hebrews 11. This is, this is, for me, a fairly new understanding of Hebrews 11. It doesn't change the meaning of the text. Rather, it's a theme I see running through the text. Um, but <clears throat> what made me think of this is, previously I told you guys, when we talked about Genesis 22, which was the passage where Abraham's offering Isaac, and how this is like so clearly a picture of Jesus in the location and all everything about it, right? And I said, this passage is nowhere in the New Testament. And I, I, I chose my words carefully. I said, it is nowhere clearly identified as a type of Christ. Well, I, was, I used the word clearly on purpose because there is this one passage in Hebrews, Hebrews 11, verse 17, where it says... By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able, and this is the crazy part, even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. Now, this takes a very Jesus-centric concept, God raising the son from the dead, and it and it connects it to the story of Abraham, but it doesn't clearly say it's a type. It's just kind of like, oh, that's interesting. Does this is this an Old Testament example of Jesus? Well, <clears throat> not entirely clear, but it seems there's something really there. And when you read the book of Hebrews, you find that the entire book of Hebrews is full of typology, angels and high priests and priests. Melchizedek, right? We talked about Melchizedek. That came from the book of Hebrews. We have Moses being a type clearly identified in other parts of the book of Hebrews. We even have the law being a count, sort of a countertype of Christ. So there's just all this stuff. And my thought was, if one of the examples in Hebrews 11 is a type, I wonder if others are as well. And as I started to read Hebrews 11 fresh and just said, let me just read it and ask, are other examples here also types of Christ? And that led to today's Bible study. So there's at least 16 of them in, in Hebrews 11. And we're going to start plowing through them tonight. We probably will have to do this in two, two Sundays to get this whole... Uh, study done, but we'll see how far we get tonight. I'm not going to do an hour and a half to to plow through it all right now. And some of you are happy, and some are sad hearing that. And me too, <laughs> both. Um, so I submit this for your consideration. Something to think about: how Hebrews 11 is possibly, quite probably, a hall of types, not just a hall of faith. So Hebrews 11.1, 1, it says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, the people of old received their commendation. Meaning that these ancient examples, what, what was great about them was their faith. Right? Um, verse 3, By faith we understand that the universe, and this is the first by faith phrase. It's going to say, by faith this, by faith that, by faith this person, by faith that event. Here it says, the first time, verse 3, by faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that it, so that what was what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. This is the concept we say creation, the fancy term creation, ex nihilo, or creation out of nothing. When people like to be you know, smart, they use Latin. So, <laughs> ex nihilo. Um, so the idea, though, here is out of nothing. The, the universe was made out of simply nothing. God simply spoke it into existence. It's simply by his word. We read about this in Genesis 1, right? And God said, let there be light. And God's, and there's a bunch of and God saids over and over again in Genesis 1. God says it, and suddenly it exists. Suddenly it is. Suddenly that's the way things are. In Psalm 33, 6, we have this kind of interpreted as well. Psalm 33, 6, it says, By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their host. 
Now, this is poetic language here, but but God, in other words, simply spoke everything into existence. He commanded it, and it was. And this has got to be the most raw form of power, that you can just declare something, and there it is. I can't think of, of, a, of a stronger way to demonstrate God's raw power in simply creating just by speaking it into existence. But how is this related to Christ? Well, many of you, you already know, right? I mean, the word... Right? So John 1, it says, in the beginning, in verse 1 of John 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word, excuse me, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And then it adds this phrase, verse 3, all things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. If it exists, it was made through Jesus. Or I should say, if it was made, it was made through Jesus. The only thing that's not made is God. So Jesus says, God, the word was God, but he's, he's related. And of course, John in writing John one, he knows the story of Genesis. He knows that God spoke the universe into existence. And he says, yes, God spoke the universe and Jesus is the word. He spoke the word. Jesus is not just the the same in, in his function and what he does as the father here, right? The father creates all things and he creates all things through the son. He's the one who it's being done through. He's the agent. Now this is actually really consistent. Several places in the New Testament give Jesus not only credit for creating all things, clearly indicating he's God, but they give him credit of being the one through whom it was created. Specifically through. 1 Corinthians 8, 6 is another verse like this. It says, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist. And one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. And notice the parallel between God the Father and then Jesus Christ. So God the Father, uh, it says, from whom everything exists from him and for him. Then of Jesus, everything exists through him and, excuse me, through uh, whom are all things and through whom we exist. I think maybe there's a correlation between not only all creation, but being in Christ as well. Maybe there's like a concept there as well but jesus is the agent by which all things are created and he himself is uncreated colossians 1 16 it says for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth in visible and invisible whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities all things were created through him and for him now earlier it said in first corinthians we read that all things were made for the father now it's all things are made for the son well if the word is God and is with God, then that makes sense. It's for both or him. It's for him. He's God, you know. But this, this concept of created through him, then in Hebrews, Hebrews 1, 2, it also says the same thing. Hebrews 1, 2 says, but in these last days, he has spoken to us. Remember the word? He's spoken into existence by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. This is a really consistent multi book concept from Genesis all the way through the New Testament. And then we read this in Hebrews eleven three, our first example of Christ. Same book that just said all things were made through Jesus. It says, by faith we understand the universe was created by the word of God. The first type is much probably stronger than a type, right? It's saying the universe was created ultimately by Jesus, right? He, he created all things. So that's the first example. I hope you see that connection. Um, Verse 4 of Hebrews 11, we get the second example. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts, and through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. So he's communicating to us through his faith. Now, this is very interesting. Um, Abel is the first historical character Hebrews 11 brings up. It'll bring up a lot of historical characters, Old Testament individuals. Abel's the first one. And Abel, again, if you look at the, it's chronological so far, right? We were in Genesis 1, as we read the first example. Now we're here in Genesis 4, as we read the second example. So Genesis 4, verse 2, we read about the birth of Abel. It says, and again, she she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. 
And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. God, God approves of Abel's offering. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. He, his face fell off. That's clearly not idiomatic for him being angry. And he, his, his, his smile got turned upside down, right? It became a frown. His face fell. That's the idea. Why the long face we say? Well, I say that. Nobody else says that anymore. <laughs> um, so these, these connect Abel to Jesus. How? Like, how, how do I say this connection in Hebrews 11 here about Abel ref- references Jesus? Well, let me say this. In two other places, the New Testament connects Jesus and Abel already. We already know Abel somehow represents Christ. And one of those is Matthew 23, 35. We've read this before. Um, Jesus is speaking to Jerusalem and he says that on you, Jerusalem, may come all the righteous blood shed on the earth from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. And that the rejection of Jesus, the ultimate messenger of God, was like rejecting every godly person ever because he's the culmination he's the he's the ultimate example of god reaching out to mankind god sending someone in this case he speaks to us right god himself comes and speaks to us so that's the first one <clears throat> then in uh, hebrews twelve twenty four, there's another place where it connects abel and jesus it says and to jesus the mediator of a new covenant and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of abel And so here Jesus and Abel are grabbed and compared in this other verse. Pardon me. Um, And this is kind of a, a, the concept here, Abel offers an an acceptable sacrifice. Cain does not. Um, Abel then is killed by his brother Cain. Cain rises up, and as you keep reading Genesis 4, he rises up and kills his brother. And Jesus's, uh, his blood blood comes to the ground. And then uh, Cain is, is, not able to draw from the ground anymore. There's some kind of universality in the way it affects Cain, the blood of Abel. And the blood of Jesus is the reverse of that, right? It is, it is a protection. It is a forgiveness. It is grace. It speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Um, <clears throat> there's more, though, I think. So now I just established that Cain and, or Abel and Jesus are connected in other places in the scripture. But what about this Hebrews 11 passage? It says specifically Abel, he brought a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain. That's, that's the concept. He had a more acceptable sacrifice. And that is a theme in the book of Hebrews, as you read the whole book of Hebrews, that Jesus' sacrifice is better than all of the previous sacrifices. Right? The blood of bulls and goats could never really get, a, get rid of sin. But Jesus, one time, he, he dies and pays for our sin. That they, they kept redoing the sacrifices. Jesus, one sacrifice. They were always standing in the temple and never sat down. Jesus, he sacrifices and sits down because his job is done. Like that it's everything is in Hebrews. It's always Jesus is a better sacrifice. Jesus is a better priest. Jesus is better than the angels. He's better, better, better here. He's better than what happened with Cain. Um, and Abel's sacrifice was better than Cain's. Well, Jesus is, is better than Abel's. It's just interesting to think that Cain's and Abel's sacrifices predate the law. I mean, Hey, they predate Abraham, let alone Moses. I mean, this is like, we're talking ancient times. What's happening here amongst them? Um, Abel's offering was the first offering in the Bible. And it's like the offering that Jesus gave because he offers a sheep. And the sheep is probably the most typological animal. The, the animal that connects most of all the sacrificial animals to Jesus is the sheep, the Passover lamb, the sheep. This, this concept of a spotless one who comes and who is who's basically um, just... All you are is for an offering. That's like how you exist and what you're for. <clears throat> so I think that's interesting. This offering comes before the law. And it's the most typological, in my opinion, of the sacrifices. But Abel also, Abel is a shepherd. Yeah, Abel is a shepherd. He's martyred and he offers an acceptable sacrifice. These are like the things we know about him. He's a shepherd who's martyred and who offers the acceptable sacrifice. I think that sounds like Jesus. He's the good shepherd. He was the ultimate martyr and he was the final, ultimate, acceptable sacrifice to make us acceptable to God. Verse 5, Hebrews 11, verse 5. By faith, Enoch, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had, not, uh, God had taken him. Now, before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. So now we get to this character, Enoch, who we're, con- we're continuing to go chronologically right now. 
Now we're in Genesis 5, if you're reading through Genesis. In Genesis 5, we read about Enoch. He was the seventh generation from Adam. We know hardly anything about this guy. What little we know is that he didn't die. He just wasn't. He just was not. Where is he? God took him. That's what we know. So let me read to you Genesis 5.21. It says, When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God after he'd fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Then verse 24, this is the, this is the rest of the info you know about this guy. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. There are tons of ancient Jewish traditions and speculations about Enoch. Tons. They're like, maybe he's this, maybe he did that. No, we have all these stories about what he did. Um, but what we literally know about him is he walked with God, and then he simply wasn't around because God took him. I would say Jesus did this as well. He is, he is amongst the few in the Bible who were taken, who were simply taken by God. In Luke 24, 50 and 51, we read about this. It says, And he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. That was the last time the disciples saw Jesus on the earth. So after his death and resurrection, for 40 days and nights, he, he, he then goes around and he's sharing with, with people. He's doing different things. And then his ascension happens. He goes to the Mount of Olives and he's just taken up into heaven. Um, Acts 1.9 gives us a little bit more info. It says, And when he'd said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. A cloud takes him out of their sight. So he, he, the last thing they saw is he went up into a cloud. Now, does that mean that heaven is in that cloud? No, I mean, obviously God is doing this to demonstrate to us truths about Jesus. He wants the visual of you seeing Christ go up so that you will realize Christ is what? Accepted. He's, he's glorified. He's exalted, right? He was brought low and now he's lifted up. Now he's exalted. He's accepted by the cloud. In fact, the Jewish mind would realize that in the Old Testament, the Son of Man who's identified as the Messiah, comes riding on the clouds. And that was a really important phrase for lots of reasons I don't have time to get into tonight, but really neat phrases, coming on the clouds or riding on the clouds, this concept of this exalted one, because every Jewish person knows God rides on the clouds. It is God who rides on the clouds, but there's this Daniel passage, and Daniel, I think it's Daniel 7, where it says it's the Son of Man is riding on the clouds. And they tell the disciples after Jesus is taken up, he goes, just like you saw him go, that's how it's going to look when he comes back. And he's riding on the class. So I was like, ha ha. So a couple of things to consider. Um, Enoch, he was not found. The text says he was not found. How does that represent Jesus? Well, John 7.32, it says, Then the Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, about Jesus. And the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I'm going to him who sent me. He's talking about his ascension. He says, you will seek me and you will not find me for where I am. You cannot come. So Jesus, he, he went up and he was not found. I think that connects. That's kind of neat. Um, also, it says that Enoch pleased God. He pleased God and him being taken up is really like an affirmation. I mean, yeah, you please God. God's like, here, come here. Obviously you pleased God. And this is the case for Jesus, that it was the, the visible representation of Christ being received, being, yes, you are approved, you are affirmed, you know, as the exalted one. All right. Hebrews 11.6. It says, without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Of course, the truth is, in like in verse 6 here, it's, it's not just blind faith that you have to have. You have to have faith in Jesus. Like, ultimately, the faith that we have is in Christ. You draw near through faith in Jesus Christ. That, of course, represents him, in a sense, that right there. Because Jesus is the one that brings you in. But just on a side note here, since because verse 6 isn't so much typological as it is now a pastoral moment, right? This is, this is kind of important that what our faith is, is I don't just have faith in the ideas of Christianity. right? I believe the ideas or the truths of Christianity are true. But my faith, my trust, is in him. My trust is personally in God. 
Through Jesus Christ, I'm trusting him, not just ideas, not, not just concepts. I mean, I believe all the theology of Christianity, but my trust, I can't so much trust theology as I can trust a person, and I trust him. And so I just want to encourage us that we've got to trust him. We do have to believe correct theology because you don't want to be believing lies about God. I mean, how can I really trust him if I have a bunch of lies in my head about him? But ultimately, it says he's a rewarder of those who seek him. It's, it's deeply personal. It's deeply individually personal, this walk with God. And that's my favorite part of it. Verse 7, Hebrews eleven seven. it says, By faith Noah, and now we bring up Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. And you see, we're still going chronologically through Genesis. Now we're in the flood. <clears throat> so, Noah, how is Noah related to Christ? How is Noah a type of Christ? Well, perhaps he is, but I don't think that's where I'm going to go with it. Um, I think the ark is a type of Christ. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark. And I think the ark, the arky arky, is a type of Christ. Specifically, notice what the ark did. It says he constructed an ark for the saving of his household. The ark would save them. Jesus ultimately saves us. Can I compare Jesus to an inanimate object? You mean like a bronze serpent or a rock that was struck? Yes, <laughs> yes, I can. In fact, I have strong biblical reasons to do this, actually. What was that? Manna from heaven, perhaps? Yes. Um, yeah, absolutely we can, and we, and we ought to. Um, the ark, if you read the story of the flood, it's, it's the ark that takes the flood for the people in it. They survive the flood because the ark can withstand it. It can get rained on, it can get flooded, and they can come out alive. It takes the judgment for them. Then they're safely taken through because the ark is able to overcome, in a sense, the judgment. And Christ overcomes the judgment. He goes into death, he conquers it, and I get in Christ, and in Christ, read, read Ephesians 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, and 6, and you'll see that in Christ, I'm in him, that then I am delivered from judgment and from the wrath of God, because he's able to withstand and overcome it. I think it's a beautiful picture of Christ, right? The flood certainly equals judgment and death, if you read the passage. Then we have this in Second uh, Peter 3, 6. It says, and that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged, that means flooded, with water and perished. The description in Second Peter of the flood, it describes the world that then existed, and it says that it died. That the flood caused it to perish. Now there's a debate on, did that, does that word world mean the people? God so loved the world. Does the people, does it mean the world, the people, or the world like the entire planet? That's not the focus of this particular study, so I'll just, I'll just throw it out there. You can debate it amongst yourselves. Um, but death ultimately comes to all, and, but only in Jesus can we make it through from one world to the next. In fact, that's what happened. The, the vision that we're getting in the flood story is that one world dies and another one comes, and the only way to get through is through the ark. You see, this world is passing away, and the only way to make it through is Jesus Christ. I don't think I'm making this up. I think God made this up, and he put it in the text, and he wants us to discover these things. First Peter also goes on to relate this whole ark situation to the concept of baptism. So let me read to you this in 1 Peter 3, 20 and 21. It says, Because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Not as a removal of dirt from the body. So we're not talking about get water baptized to be saved. No, no, no. But as an appeal of, to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus. This specifically compares the flood and getting delivered through the flood to, to being identified in Christ in his death and resurrection. And so every time I baptize people, I mention how this symbolizes dying with Christ and being raised with Christ. And here it's a flood. You're going through your own personal flood in baptism. And that's the idea. So Romans 6.3 supports this. It says, Do you not know 
that all of us who've been baptized into Christ, Jesus, were baptized into his death. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Jesus dies and comes out alive, and all I have to do is be identified with him in that. The ark goes through the flood. You just have to be in the ark to be saved. Jesus in the ark. Jesus in the ark. It's an interesting concept. Um, in Romans 8.1, it says this, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I mean, positionally in Christ Jesus. In the ark, there was condemnation for everyone who was outside the ark, and there was salvation for everyone who was in the ark. But as we read the story, and, and you, you come to this one verse, Genesis 7.16, that jumps out to you. See if you can find out what jumps out to you in this verse. It's, it says this, And those that entered, male and female of all flesh, went in as God commanded him, and the Lord shut him in. And we have this moment when they all get in the ark, and it's like, well, who's going to seal the, 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 the opening now? Because the ark had an opening in its side, and they all went in, and something had to seal and close this thing up. And the Lord shut it and sealed it up, and now no one can get in, no, one, no one's getting out, and then the flood came. And then the flood came. Now, here's what's interesting. Jesus had an opening in his side as well. In, in particular, it's, I mean, he had, you know, the, there's the nails in his hands and feet, then there's the opening in his side. Now, as I understand it, until that door was closed, you could get in the ark and be saved. But once that door was sealed, now that's it. Judgment's coming. It's too late. Jesus, after his death and resurrection, he had an opening in his side that was not sealed. As he comes to Thomas and he goes, Thomas, go ahead, put your hand in my side. And I am not saying this is guaranteed, but I really wonder if this is meant to somehow represent the fact that salvation is still open. You can still be in Christ. Even right now today, it's, it's the day of grace. It's the day of being accepted and being entering into Christ and being saved by him. And then the sealing comes from God. He seals you. And, and in, being, in Christ, you are sealed by the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 1.13. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. And there's the sealing in him that comes from the Holy Spirit. So I think that's kind of interesting. It also says in, in uh, Hebrews 11.7 that through doing all these things, Noah condemned the world. Isn't that interesting? The ark is like a dividing point, And it's like either you get in and you're saved or you don't and you're condemned. And it actually brings greater condemnation on you. He condemned the world. Well, Jesus, it's kind of the same way. In John 12, 31, it says, Now is the judgment of the world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. Jesus, in John 12, he's talking about his crucifixion. And he goes, I'm going to die. This is going to be, it's going to be the salvation for those who trust me, but it's condemnation for the, for the world. For those who don't. In John 3, 18 and 19, we all know John 3, 16. Some people have never read the rest of the chapter. I think it would be very wise to look at the whole thing. It says, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he's not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment, that light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. So it's an increased condemnation for rejecting Jesus, but a total salvation for accepting Jesus. It's like you're either saved by Jesus or finally condemned by Jesus. But currently, the ark is open. <laughs> at, the moment, at this moment, the ark is open and the condemnation is not coming down, praise God, yet. So, you guys liking this? Hebrews 11, pretty neat stuff. Um... There's more. So Hebrews 11, verse 8. By faith, Abraham. Now let's talk about Abraham, continuing chronologically. Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. Um, let's read um, a little bit of Genesis here. Because we're going to read about when God first calls Abraham. I think it's just interesting in Genesis 12. It says, Now the Lord said to Abraham, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to a land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. 
And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now, this very promise, this very calling to Abram is so messianic, right? Because ultimately, Abram's whole blessing, cursing promise, it's all about Jesus. That's the ultimate thing that, that Israel was bringing forth was the Messiah. So this, so his, his calling to go into a land was about bringing out the Messiah in the first place. It was about Jesus Christ. The blessing and cursing, the sort of... Um, dividing line that Abram is, he's like, you're going to be, you're going to be the decision. How they treat you is, is how I treat them. And this is of course, Jesus. This is, this is Christ. How you treat Jesus is how God treats you ultimately, right? Jesus, when he tells his parable of, or his story rather about how the son of man will come and there'll be some who, uh, who were like, Lord, didn't we do all these things in your name? And he goes, yeah, but how you treated the least of these, my brethren, that's how you treated me. It's ultimately all about him. Those who were like, when did we ever see you? And he goes, oh, how you treated them is how you treated me. It's ultimately how you treat Christ. This very promise totally about Jesus in Abraham uh, in uh, Genesis 12. <clears throat> Abraham is called specifically to leave his land and his father's house. How do you think that represents Jesus? <laughs> you know, he leaves heaven. He comes up from his father, John, John 16, 28. He says, I came from the father and have come into the world. And now I'm leaving the world and going to the father. John 17, 5. And now father glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. So Abram leaves father and land to go out so that what? So that he might become a people. So that he might bless this distant offspring, these, these other people. He goes out away from his father. It's really interesting that Abram dies in faith so that his offspring can be blessed. Jesus, he dies to bring us the blessing. What, did he, what he did was he just kept giving things up so that he could then bring them to us. And that's kind of what Abram goes through as well. Then in uh, John 1.14... We have another connection to Abram because it's interesting as you read the story of Abraham, you, you get this phrase, he pitched his tent or he set up his tent and he, he always dwelt in tents. In fact, Hebrews talked about it. It says he dwelt in tents with, with his sons, uh, with Isaac and Jacob. He, he dwells in tents. That's kind of what he does. It's his theme. But this is what Jesus did in John 1, 14. We have this interesting phrase and the word became flesh and dwelt amongst us. Um, this is literally the word that means tabernacled or to live in a tent, to set up a tent. That's like what the Greek word means. And I think it was chosen purposely, purposefully. And I think it may relate also to the, to the actual tabernacle in the wilderness where God tabernacled amongst them. That's a different study. Spoiler alert. Um, we'll, we'll, do the, we'll do the whole tabernacle stuff at some point. Um, I'm excited to do that. So Abraham dwelt in tents. Jesus, of course, he came in a tent in that human form, that temporary uh, dwelling to come into a land that was in a sense not his own right? To, to bless us. So Abraham and Jesus, they left the land, they left their father, they dwelt in tents, and they died for their seed to inherit a promise. Except what Jesus did was in every way better than what Abraham did. And we see the escalation of it. And that's, that's the theme in typology is escalation. Verse 10, there's more about him. It says, for he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Looking forward to a city. Abraham looked to not just the land, but to the thing God was doing through all of this, this ultimate city that's going to be made by God, that he would be part of. I mean, what we read about in the New Testament is this is the new Jerusalem, ultimately. And the new Jerusalem, as we read about in Revelation, it's like the culmination is so much in the scriptures, but it's where God and man dwell together eternally, fully, with no separation, and it's on the new earth. This, and it comes down from heaven out of God, or out of heaven from God, I should say. And it comes down to earth, this new city, Jerusalem. God and man together. It says the designer and builder is God, in verse 10, of the new city that Abram was looking for. The designer and builder is God. Now, earlier in Hebrews, it, it talks about how Jesus is the builder, and Moses was part of the house. You guys remember this from last time we talked about Moses, this little recap. Hebrews 3, see if you can catch the theme designer builder and how it relates to Jesus. Um, Hebrews 3 verse 3, for Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now there's a deity of Christ verse, if I've ever seen one, right? 
Jesus is the builder of the house and the builder of all things, God. Okay. Hebrews 12, 2, it says that Jesus, this is just after Hebrews 11, right? It says Jesus is the founder and perfecter of our faith or the author and finisher of our faith. Um, this, this designer and builder, ultimately the escalation of it, right? Abram's really just looking forward to what God's going to do. He's just a picture. Um, God's the painter. All right, verse 11, Hebrews eleven eleven. By faith, Sarah herself, and we're talking about Sarah, she received power to conceive even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Now, God had promised Abram and Sarah that they would have a child that would be of their own. She would actually bear a child, but she was like way too old for it. She'd passed that season of life. She was not able to have a kid. And she trusted God. I mean, at one point she laughed, and then I think God corrected her. And that laughter, because there's a laughter of unbelief, the mocking laughter, then there's a laughter of joy of like, Oh, God, you're doing this. Like, that's a different kind of laughter, right? So she names him Isaac, the good kind of laughter, I think. And, um, and so she received that rebuke. She trusted God. But I ask, how could Sarah be a type of Christ? Well, I don't think she in all totality is. I think her pregnancy is. It's a miraculous birth. There's a promised child of Abraham that comes miraculously born. Jesus, of course, is born of a virgin. It's a miraculous birth, and that's a theme we see here. In the first son of Abraham, the first son of the promise, is born miraculously. And so Christ, uh, similarly to that. Verse 12, Therefore from one man, Abram, or Abraham, depending on where you are in Genesis, um, and him as good as dead, were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand on the seashore. So the numbers of the children of Abraham here are highlighted. And how does this relate to Christ? I think it's a message of the many, many people who will come to Christ. Can you believe how many people have been saved now? From nations around the world, through generations and generations? Like, it's going to be a crowded city. <laughs> well, hopefully not too crowded. I really don't like... I don't want it to be like Disneyland. <laughs> it would be better, even better than Disneyland. Disney World. <laughs> Just kidding. But so I, I just see the connection of Abraham. You'll have many, 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 many offspring. This is typological of Christ and the many, many, many who will be saved in him. And we're children of Abraham by faith, the scripture says. So this, what I'm saying here is I'm not making this up. Like this is the typology we see throughout the scripture. This is just, it just marries it together. You know, there's, there's texts that say we're children of Abraham by faith. And so, um, yeah, pretty cool stuff. Verse 13. As I'm studying this in Hebrews 11, I was like, is it really this consistent? Are there really typological elements throughout the whole thing? And um, I think that there are, or at least nearly. We'll see. You decide. You tell me what you think. Verse 13. These all died in faith. Now, it's kind of an inclusive statement about all the people we talked about so far. They all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. In other words, they're living in a, in a place that's not their own, like Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Like, they don't really inherit the land. They just inhabit the land, waiting for it to become, in the future, God's promise fulfilled so that they'll receive it. We read about these people. They're all waiting on some future greatness, and we're seeing that... The future-looking faith of the Old Testament saints is representing the fact that there was something greater coming, which ultimately is Jesus. And what were they? They were strangers and exiles on the earth. So what was this great thing that they saw from afar off? Well, they were all promises of God. You'll inherit the land. You'll have great numbers of children. I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you, and in you all the nations of the earth will be blessed. All these promises, though, relate to Jesus. They all directly end up relating to Christ. So you could say they're trusting in Christ by believing in promises that relate to Christ. I mean, how much about Abraham did, did about Jesus did Abraham know? He knew that in him all the nations would be blessed, and he knew that there'd be an inheritance of land, and he knew some of these things, but it wasn't the full story, but that was the true Jesus. So neat stuff to think about. So that's what they kind of saw from afar off. They greeted Christ, so to speak. The Ark of Noah the sacrifice of Abel, they all relate to Jesus. These Old Testament saints trusting in things that are ultimately types of Christ. And they all died in faith. And so it's not just that they died, but they died thinking of some future hope that would happen after they died. 
We see this in Abraham's traveling and Isaac and Jacob blessing their sons. We'll get to that in a minute. How they bless their sons about some great future blessing that will come upon them. So they're all trusting in some great good thing coming after they die. And of course that represents um, uh, Jesus. It says in Hebrews uh, 12.2, Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. He endured the cross because of what? Some great hope of some wonderful future that would happen after he died. So these, that relates to Jesus. Strangers and exiles on the earth they were, it says, as I speak like Yoda all of a sudden for no reason. In John 18, 36, Jesus answered, it says, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I may not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from this world. So Jesus living in this world as though he doesn't belong, as though he's a stranger. And so they lived like strangers and exiles. And so Christ. All right, Hebrews eleven fourteen. We'll see how we'll do a little bit more. We'll finish this up next next week. Um, Hebrews eleven fourteen. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they'd been thinking of that land from which they'd gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. They could have, you know, Abram could have gone right back to where he'd gone, he'd come from. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He has prepared for them. A city. So again, this concept of a city. So I think we should actually read Revelation 21 where it talks about this, this future city of God that it's referring to. So their desire, though, uh, in the scheme of God's like tapestry, it was kind of for something temporary. Um, I need an ark to get through the flood. I need a land. I need a child. But all of them ultimately pointed towards Jesus Christ. And so that's where their ultimate hope is. In verse 16, it says it's a better country, specifically a heavenly one, and it's a city. And I, I can't help but connect that to Revelation 21 because it's better, it's a city, and it's heavenly. I don't know how many heavenly cities you know. The only one I know is the New Jerusalem in Revelation 21. It says in Revelation 21:1, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem. But it doesn't stay up there, right? He sees it, and it's coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband, probably because it's where the bride goes, where the bride, we live there. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. This is the ultimate culmination of God being united to man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away Every tear from their eyes, and I, I can't help but just pause and point out, I think wiping away the tears is not just a physical act. The idea is this, whatever's causing you to cry, God can, he's like taking away the need for the tears because of the joy of the presence of God and his goodness and his comfort and his glory. That it's like, I, all the sorrows I've had and all the grief I've had, I no longer even have a reason to cry. God, you have truly comforted me in the fullest sense. He wipes away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there, shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. It's things that we can put our hope and, and rely upon. That's the ultimate thing they're looking for. So here in the typology of Hebrews 11, which I think is pretty strong, it's suggesting that these Old Testament saints who were looking forward to a greater hope were also hoping in the ultimate revelation of heaven, the ultimate recreation of heaven and earth, which is like an earthly, heavenly unity that happens. Um, so, pretty neat stuff. All right, let's, let's do verse 17 here. And make sure that we can get as far as I want to get. Okay, verse 17, it says, By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. The irony there is, God's like, your descendants will all come through Isaac. And then in Genesis 22, and you've got to read this fresh if you don't have it fresh in your mind. In Genesis 22, God tells him, Take your son, Isaac, your only son, and go and offer him to me. Don't, not just kill him for no reason, but as an offering like a sacrifice to me. And he takes his son, he travels out, he takes Isaac, Isaac carries the wood upon his back, he goes and he is ready then, laying down on the altar, and Abraham's going to slay him. 
And he's about to do it. And in his head, he's like, God told me this kid will produce all my grandkids. And I'm, but God told me to slay him. Is that not an act of faith? And before you're like, that's horrific. Like God stops him. I've heard people recount the story and not talk about how God stops him and how that was planned the whole time. He's painting a picture of Jesus through this experience. And God, but Abram's faith is strong. Look how strong this guy's faith is. And, um, and that's the whole point of it. Through Isaac, your offspring shall be named in verse 18 is to highlight the contradiction of I'm going to slay him and he's supposed to have my grandkids. So then it goes on and he interprets for us verse 19. Here's the divinely inspired explanation of this event. He considered that God was able to even raise him from the dead, from which figuratively, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. And so here he, he gets him back and he goes, Abraham just thought God can raise him up. Isaac's going to have my grandkids and I'm supposed to kill him. God's going to have to raise him back up. Now, you might be like, but he was wrong. I'll be like, but he was right about Jesus. And that's what the whole picture is about. I love Genesis 22. Here's the story of Abram, a father offering his son. Specifically, it says his only begotten son, or his son, his only son whom he loves. In fact, it's the first time the word love is used in the Bible is Genesis 22.2, where God says, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. And it wasn't really his only son, was it? He had another son, Ishmael. And God's like, that's your only son. Because it's painting a picture of Jesus, who is the only son. Whom you love, because the love of the father to the son. The son was born of miraculous means, as we talked about how Sarah received power by faith to have this miraculous birth. So Jesus was born of miraculous means, his virgin birth. He was the son of the promise. Isaac was the son of God's promise to Abram. But it was a bigger promise than just Isaac. It was about a later descendant. Jesus is the ultimate son of the promise. The father carries the fire up the mountain and the knife, bringing the judgment or the, or the death. The son carries the wood up the hill. The son carries the wood the fires holding the judgment? This to me looks like the crucifixion. It was a three-day journey from the time he left his house. And so for three days in the head of Abraham, it was like his son was dead. He committed, I'm, I'm going to lose my son. Lord, I'm trusting you. I'm going to lose my son. And for three days, Christ was dead until he raised. And the son submitted. Most people think that Isaac was at a place where he was old enough and his dad was certainly old enough where he could overpower dad at this point, right? Like Isaac would win the arm wrestling contest between these two. And he allows this stuff to take place. So the son, it's implied, is in a place of submission, allowing this stuff to happen. He never fights Abraham or Abraham. He never forces him. Abraham never forces him to do anything. It seems like he goes willingly the whole way. In John ten seventeen, Jesus said this. For this reason, the father loves me. Because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I've received from my father. All Isaac had was the father telling him, Isaac, this is what we're going to do. It doesn't say God spoke to him. He just trusted his dad. And his dad trusted God. I think this is neat. But there's more. In Genesis 22, the place where Abraham goes is Mount Moriah, which is Jerusalem. So here he goes to the... God makes him travel for three days to get to the place where Jesus will be crucified. To paint this picture. The future location. Instead of Isaac, a ram takes his place, of course, because God's not into human sacrifice and he's just drawing a picture for us. The ram takes his place. Um, The irony is that Jesus ultimately is the sacrifice for Isaac and for all of us. Do you you get the connection? I'm offering, I'm going to offer Isaac on Mount Moriah in the fashion and in the picture and in the way Jesus will be offered and Jesus comes through Isaac. I think that's pretty cool. God's kind of clever. If you hadn't noticed. (laughs) Abraham figures there's got to be a resurrection Right, he just trusts. Right, as he, as he, in fact, there's. It's implied even in Genesis 22. It says, "Then Abraham said to his young men, as they got to the mountain, he says, stay here with the donkey to them, um, and the boy and I, both of us, will go over there and worship and come again to you.'" 
He says that the boy's coming back too. Again, he believes he's, he's got to have him back from the dead is the idea. And Christ, of course, the whole plan all along was for the resurrection to take place. Also in Genesis 22, it gets better, Abraham says that it's prophetic. But, but as I read this to you, ask yourself, what is, what's, what's prophetic about it? What is it that's prophetic? It says in Genesis 22, 8, Abraham said, God will provide himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So the both of them went together. That was when uh, Isaac's like, What's, where's the offering? He goes, God will provide. Then, then, after the ram shows up and takes the place of Isaac, then in Genesis 22, 14, after the whole event's over, Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide, future tense, as it is said to this day, that's when Moses is writing it, 600 plus years later, he goes, as it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be, future tense, provided. On the mount of the Lord, where? Mount Moriah. It shall be provided. Well, what's the it? Well, the only thing we can compare the it to is the thing that Abraham just did with his son. Something like this, God will provide. That gives me goosebumps. The word of God is so amazing that the real issue is us not noticing it. You know, um, man, he says it's prophetic. It says, it says some future event like this will happen right here and it'll be God providing. And is not Jesus the greatest example of God providing? In John 1, 29, when John lays eyes on Jesus, John the Baptist, he lays on, eyes on Jesus. I, I, I'm sorry, his name more appropriately is John the Southern Baptist. Um, I'm just joking. So <laughs> I say I'm joking because I know one person out there is like, what? <laughs> it's just a joke. John 1, 29, he says, the next day he saw Jesus coming toward him. And what does he say? He says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The offering animal, here he is. He's the ultimate lamb. He's the fulfillment of all that stuff. And that's about as much as we have time for tonight. <laughs> so we're going to pick up in verse 20, and we're going to look at the rest of Hebrews 11 as it relates to being typology of Jesus um, next week. Um, and I encourage you, read ahead and just give it some thought. How could this represent Christ? My goal, and I hope I'm being faithful here, is to not fabricate, but to simply observe what God has placed in the text and how he has really saturated scripture with Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we we thank you for your word. It is exciting and it's such a blessing to our hearts um, just to sit and and see the beauty and majesty of Christ throughout the scriptures. We pray that we would not only get this passage, but that we would just have eyes to see all the glory of Christ that you've placed throughout the word of God and that we would just grow in our understanding of Jesus, grow in our trust in you, and that we'd be people like these examples here. We'd be people of faith, people who trust you, not our circumstances. We trust you, not how we feel about things. Who We trust you um, because you are worthy of our faith. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <laughs>